So welcome to this edition of Creation Talk. Today we're going to be discussing the existence of extrasolar planets. So hi, my name is Gary Bates. Today I'm welcomed by my colleague, Dr. Jonathan Safady. Oh, hi everyone, welcome to this podcast. So uh, Jonathan, in terms of uh, the way we read the Bible and the earth and human beings, their preeminent place is as part of God's creation, the idea of extrasolar planets, you know, the idea that uh, in this incredibly vast universe where we have hundreds of billions of galaxies, mm. surely, you know, there are who knows, hundreds of billions, trillions of planets out there, and people often wonder whether life might exist on them mm-hmm. or so on. So we're going to discuss today whether the existence of extrasolar planets is a problem. I remember back in the late 90s, uh, scientists were very excited that they thought they'd discovered one. They now claim they found hundreds and hundreds. My understanding in most cases, it's not exactly as if we look through a telescope and see any planets in other galaxies, you know, or even in our own galaxies beyond our own solar system. So there are various methods that people use to try to detect extrasolar planets, correct? Yeah, there are a few. Uh, See, the problem is that planets don't have their own light. They're only reflecting the sun, the star's light, and the stars are so very far away that we really have to have indirect methods of detecting these planets. But they are realistically good methods, though. Yeah, so you mentioned light, so that's a big one, isn't it? So how do we, or what kind of measurements do we use to see light coming in? And then we can talk about how the possible existence of those planets affects the light that is reaching us. One of those concepts is called Doppler, and I'll let you explain it in terms of light, but people might be familiar with Doppler, you know, that if you're sitting in your lounge room and you hear a motorcycle go down the road, Mm. you hear the sound change frequency, you know, from... So what's happening is the sound wave is changing frequency as it gets closer to us and then gets further away. And it's the same with light, isn't it? Well, it's the thing. It comes uh, towards you. It means the waves are being compressed as they come towards you. So you have an increase in pitch when it comes towards you and a decrease when it's moving away from you. The same happens with light. Now, the speed of light is constant all the time, but the frequency will change depending on the speed of the light emitter. And what's happening, the planet moves around the star. Now, even though the star is, is a lot more massive, there's still some movement of the star when it, the planet orbits. So you can see the star moving away from you and towards you. So this is the Doppler shift or radial velocity method. And this will tell you uh, the mass and the distance and the period of the orbit. You see, so you can get quite a lot of information from the way the star wobbles that you see with the Doppler effect uh, of the wobbling. Yeah, now the wavelengths of light change. So when we see objects moving away from us, in fact, as we sit here at the Earth, when we look at distant galaxies and stars, they're all red-shifted. Right. So that means if they're shifted to red in the spectrum, they're actually moving away from us. Yep. And we observe that they're actually moving away from us in every direction. So if they were blue-shifted, then they'd be moving towards us, et cetera. Right. So some of the methods using stars, et cetera, as you said, the planets themselves don't emit light. So using my hand gestures here, we can imagine if we had a, a great big star, a sun here, and as a planet moves in front of it, now we can't see the planet, mm. but as we see the planet move in front of us, it's going to dim or block a certain portion of that star behind it. Right, that happens too. Now, that's called the transit method, correct? Yes, a transit or photometric, because you're measuring a drop of light every so often, the period of the planet, and 
it's a regular drop of light as the planet eclipses the parent star. So it vary by a very small amount, but it does um, it does reduce the star's out light towards us by a measurable amount. So you can again see the size of the planet by how much of a light it it's blocking out. Yeah, so it's fair to assume that when we see that drop in light, it, it is most likely a planet you know moving in front of it. Another one is detecting the what's called the gravitational wobble. That's a very similar method. You want to explain that one for us? Well, I mean, the gravitational wobble is basically the Doppler effect because it's the uh, gravitational wobble that is showing us the Doppler effect, showing us how the spectrum alternates from red to blue shift as the star wobbles um, as the planet is orbiting it. So the, the star is actually, the planet and the star orbit a common center of mass. That's the real thing. Okay, uh, so as a planet orbits, the star is also orbiting, but its orbit's much smaller because its mass is so much greater. But the Doppler effect is what we're observing with that. Yes. Yeah, so what we're saying, though, you think about it, even if you took something the size of our own sun, which is an average, pretty average-sized star, but for a planet to be so large that it causes that sun to wobble, wouldn't that mean that the planet itself has to be of considerable size? So, Jonathan, even when we look in our own solar system, uh, one of the problems for an evolutionary Big Bang model of the universe and, and indeed our solar system is we see some of our planets actually spinning in the wrong direction. And then we look at extrasolar planets, we actually see their orbits going in the wrong direction. Mm. Uh, now, the, the main theory of stellar evolution is the nebula hypothesis. So why is this problematic when we look at extrasolar planets for the evolutionary origin of the universe. Well, I mean, the evolutionary idea of star formation is a, a cloud of dust and gas co collapsing under its own gravity to form the star and the planets around it. And for one thing, uh, clouds tend to expand and not contract. So that's a problem to start with. There are big problems, problems in our own solar system because you can think about what happens when a, an ice skater pulls in her arms while she's spinning. Her spin rate goes up a lot because that, that's called a conservation of angular momentum. You can see it every time you have a ballet dancer pulling her arms in. And the same should happen when the cloud collapses to the sun. Yeah. Now, the sun actually should, has most of the mass of the solar system, but it has very little of the angular momentum. It's spinning very, very slowly, but most of the mass is there. So the sun should be spinning fast and it's spinning slowly. That's a big problem. Yeah, I mentioned earlier too, some of these planets we look at must be massive. And some of the thoughts are they actually might even be small stars themselves. I think they call them red dwarfs. Brown dwarfs, I'd imagine, yeah. In some of these cases, they're going to be, the planets themselves are also going to be tidally locked aren't they? Well, the thing is, uh, you, as you pointed out earlier, the planets often are very massive, but from the orbit, the speed of the orbit, it must be very close into their parent star. But the problem is, the theories of formation of the gas giants mean you have to have them quite far out of the solar system because they believe that you have ice condensing out there, which increases the mass to such an extent that gas becomes drawn in from the surrounding nebula. So you have to have the planets falling quite far from the sun. But here we have the planets really close to the sun. So the big giant planet should not have formed that close to the sun. The ice would have evaporated. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the problem, as you say, because if they're orbiting a red dwarf... A star, the most common type of star, they would be so close that the that have that have one face continuously pointing towards the star, like our moon does to us. Okay, that is called tidal locking, 
And this would be very hard for life to form there because um, you'd have one side that's perpetual hot day, the other side's perpetual freezing night. So, Jonathan, we're talking about just quite technical. People might wonder what it's all about, but we've discussed a couple of things that some of the extrasolar planets that we think exist, mm -hmm. uh, because they cause a wobble in their own sun, they'd be absolutely massive. That means gravity is so intense, you know, life would not be able to exist. Mm. Uh, they're so close to their planet, uh, to their star, that they'd fry. When we look at our own solar system, mm. the Earth in particular seems to be perfectly positioned, uniquely designed, if you like, for human life to exist. We, oh, yeah. we say it exists in the Goldilocks zone, right? Because if we were any closer to the sun, we'd fry. Mm -hmm. Any further away, we'd freeze. And then when we look at our orbit, yes, it's slightly elliptical, but it doesn't vary so greatly that, you know, we'd cause these huge varying temperatures on the Earth as well. Now, when we look at some of these extrasolar planets, they have also very, very extreme orbits also. Mm -hmm. So it's not really problematic from a biblical creation perspective that there might be all of these planets out there, and therefore that must mean that there's kind of life out there, because really everywhere else we've observed so far, we've never seen a planet, whether directly or through these other observational methods, that would be capable of supporting life. Correct. So the, most, the commonest star by far is a red dwarf star. Now, the thing is, they, they, as we've pointed out, the, the planets, uh, to get enough light from such a very faint star, would have to be very close, which would mean their tidal locking. The other problem with red stars is they have star spots, which are very big. They cover 40% of the surface, so they, they're very variable stars. And they're also flare stars. They, they emit huge flares all the time. Now, our sun, because it's, it spins very slowly, it means it's a very quiescent star. I mean, even stars that are like our sun emit lots of, of dangerous flares. Our sun emits them very rarely, and they're not that intense. But other flare stars, they destroy life on a planet every time they had a flare. So it's a huge problem. These red stars are not very good for life. Yeah. So even within our own solar system, we kind of say, well, the most Earth-like planets, even if we can call them that, would probably be Mars and Venus. People are getting very excited about Mars. Yep. Uh, and yeah, maybe we can digress a bit here. It looks like certainly there may have been water on Mars at some stage. Mm -hmm. uh, it looks like there might be water trapped in the poles. We can even see sedimentary layers in some of the canyons and the rocks. Sedimentary rocks and layers most likely formed underwater. Size-wise, it's pretty similar to Earth, but we're not going to find, uh, I think, life as we know it to quote Dr. McCoy from Star Trek. Where do we think the water has gone on Mars? Well, it's an interesting question that um, evolutions are often happy to believe in huge floods on Mars, which we can't. We have trouble finding water, but don't want to believe in a huge flood on Earth that's covered by water. Very weird. Yeah, 70% of the Earth's surface now is covered with water. Uh, lots of ideas, of course, is that Mars may have even had an atmosphere at one stage. Maybe it underwent some bombardment, asteroid bombardment that caused the uh, water to sublimate or boil off the surface. Well, the other problem is Mars is, is actually a, has a lower gravity than Earth. You see, Earth's got a, quite a good gravity. Uh, Mars may have too weak a gravity to hold much of an atmosphere. It does have an atmosphere, but not very much of one, while Earth's gravity is strong enough to hold a, a fairly substantial atmosphere. Yeah, so the point I wanted to mention that is we've got something right in our own neighbourhood that's you know, the most similar we can find to Earth, but we can see still mm. how problematic it is that life could even exist there. And when we look at the Earth, this tiny speck, mm. that's also another thing people, you know, why would God bother 
with this tiny little dot in in the universe. I mean, what's so special? Why do why why create life here? Well, I mean, it's interesting that these uh, modern astronomers bring this up as though it's some sort of new argument that Christians have never thought about. But in fact, the church, even in the Middle Ages, understood that compared to the distance of the stars, the earth was a mere point that basically had no size. That They understood perfectly well the earth was a speck compared to the, to the whole universe. They understood the smallest star we see is bigger than the earth. So this is not new knowledge, yet the church in the Middle Ages had no problem understanding that God had created life on this planet, even though they knew it was tiny. Well, what's, what's the big deal about size anyway? Is a four-foot man worth less than a seven-foot man? It's, it's a, a nonsensical argument. Yes, it is. And certainly when we, we look and, uh, to the earth, you know, we're not only the spiritual center of the universe, but we were talking about redshifts, etc., and that's for another discussion. Mm-hmm. We certainly look like our Milky Way is somewhere near the physical center of the universe as well. So like you said, size is not really important. But when we do look, I think one of the great things we can observe and reason from looking elsewhere at all these extrasolar planets, it increasingly gives the impression that the Earth is unique, that the Earth is special. Mm. And that's actually something that scientists refer to as the anthropic principle, right? Well, it's an interesting thing, the anthropic principle, which means that uh, the universe is arranged in such a way that it supports life like us, which is quite rare because, in fact, if you look at the combinations of the fundamental constants of nature, very few of, um, of those combinations even allow atoms and molecules, let alone life. So, in fact, even the, the, the universe's fundamental constants are designed to support human life. And even where we are, the Earth and the solar system designed to support life. I mean, it's the ideal place, as you pointed out earlier. Even our location in the Milky Way, we're not at the center, which means we're not going to be sucked in by a black hole, but we're in a place where we can observe the stars easily. So, so a lot about well, where we are points to God having designed the Earth for our benefit. Yeah, so a couple more of those. If we were closer to the centre of our galaxy, the galactic central bulge, as they call it, we'd be fried by cosmic radiation. We wouldn't even be able to see the other stars out there, which clearly God says were for signs and seasons, and we know how ancient navigators used the stars to find their way around the Earth. So even closer to us, when we look at our own moon, we know the distance pretty precisely because we've obviously put reflective objects on there that we can fly lasers at and get the exact distance. We know the moon is retreating, say, a couple of centimetres per year. Mm. Now, they say that, according to the nebula hypothesis, the Earth and the moon are about 4.5 billion years old. But even a billion years ago, Mm. the moon would have been so close to the Earth that tides would wash hundreds of kilometres on the land every day. They would have been eroded out, Mm. impossible for life. So when we look at it, we're, we're really right now the perfect distance in an evolutionary sense, it would have been impossible for that to be the case a billion or even billions of years ago. Well, correct, yes, sir, because the moon is retreating about four centimetres per year or one and a half inches per year. And the thing is, this effect is, is much greater the closer you are. So it actually, the, um, if you t- go back in time, you find the, the effect of this actually far greater in the past than it is in the present. So you do the calculations, we can find that the Earth and Moon would have been touching um, just over one billion years ago, little, but not four and a half billion years ago, which is the acclaimed age of the Earth. 
And also tides are proportional to the inverse cube of a distance. So if the moon is 10 times closer, it means the tides are a thousand times bigger, which would uh, destroy all life on land. So, John, one thing we could do is talk for millions of years on this subject because there's so much information to cover and we want to obviously encourage people to go to our website. But here's the take-home point, ladies and gentlemen. You know, in Isaiah 45, 18, it says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, He who formed the earth and made it, He established it, He did not create it empty, He formed it to be inhabited. The earth is unique and it was made for human beings. Well, thank you very much for your attention. We hope that you will like us and share us on the social media. But please also check out the resources uh, in in the show notes. And we hope to see you next time.